The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, learn about the upcoming United States Census and a significant accessibility lawsuit has been settled. Welcome to ACB Reports for February 2010. In mid-2009, the American Council of the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind filed a lawsuit against Arizona State University and the Arizona State Board of Regents. This lawsuit arose from the university's participation in a pilot program to use the Kindle DX, a dedicated device for reading electronic books known as e-books. The lawsuit alleged that the Kindle DX was inaccessible to blind students and thus violated federal law. A settlement was announced on January 11, 2010. ACB President Mitch Pomerantz explains. Both organizations, NFB and, and the American Council of the Blind, became very concerned over the announcement by Arizona State University that it was planning on using the Kindle ebook reader, which we know is not accessible to blind people, in a two-semester class that it was scheduling for the fall of 2009 and the spring of 2010. For some background, the Kindle ebook reader is usable by some visually impaired folks if they can see well enough to read the menus. So we became concerned because of the threat to the education of blind students. Arizona State was only one of seven or eight universities around the country that had expressed interest in the Kindle or similar devices for classroom work. Textbooks are getting terribly expensive. Uh, in fact, here in, in my home state, California, uh, three or four months ago, an official in the uh, office that administers K through 12 education had suggested that California turn away from textbooks and start providing ebook readers to its students. And that was a pretty scary prospect, because if, in fact, the Kindle or similar devices aren't accessible, that will put our students at a significant disadvantage. Uh, if sighted students have instant access to all the research material they need or any book or newspaper they need, and blind students have to go to a disabled student services office, even the best ones, uh, it may take three days to a week to download material, to scan it, to put it into a format that a blind student can utilize. So what triggered the litigation was our fear that this would significantly impact in a negative way uh, the education of our students. This had nothing to do then with the copyright matter where publishers were in an uproar about turning off the voice reading? The way we look at it, Mike, this is the process of getting Kindle, getting Amazon actually, and the other companies who manufacture these devices, 
the process of getting them to stand up to the publishers and the Authors Guild. This is really the first step in the process. We had to first make it clear legally that these devices were covered under uh, the Rehabilitation Act and also under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So what I have said to the ACB Board of Directors, what I have said to the membership, what I'll say to the membership uh, as this issue continues to proceed, is that this is the first step in the process. Does it specifically deal with the problem with publishers? Not yet, but it was the first stepping stone on the road to what we hope ultimately will be a fully accessible ebook readers and b text to speech that uh, cannot is not turned off by the publishers by the uh, ebook producers just because they feel like it so the lawsuit was filed and then this is being recorded on january 13th and just this week a settlement was announced I was deposed along with uh, the NFB president, Mark Maurer, back in mid-October in Phoenix. And, you know, people, I think, uh, you know, if, if you just casually follow uh, legal news uh, and the news generally, you think every lawsuit goes to trial. Uh, most lawsuits don't go to trial. Most lawsuits get settled. We really began to talk settlement because it appeared as if we could achieve our aims without the expense uh, and the time of a trial. Uh, Arizona State did not indicate that they were going to use the Kindle beyond the two-semester course. Uh, they were willing to stipulate that if they chose to use uh, an e-book reader again, that they would make every effort to only utilize such readers that uh, were fully accessible, and that uh, they would enter into a joint press release with ACB and NFB, indicating the terms of the settlement. We already know that the legal term is chilling effect. And what we hope to have, and I think we already are seeing it, is that other institutions of higher education are thinking twice about utilizing e-book readers until and unless those devices are fully accessible. And so we felt we had achieved the first step in this process by settling with Arizona State University. So one of the other misnomers that goes with lawsuits is you think, uh, well, somebody gets a pile of money, but sometimes there are more important things than a pile of money. There is absolutely no monetary damages involved. ACB and NFB are not receiving one dime for this litigation. Were there blind students at Arizona State University who were affected by this decision? Directly, no. There are blind students attending Arizona State University, but in the honors course where the Kindle is being used, there were no blind students. 
one of the Arizona State students was initially a named plaintiff in the lawsuit. However, and we think wrongly, the judge in the preliminary hearing dismissed the individual believing that he did not have specific standing, that he was not directly affected, that it was speculative to believe that he would be harmed if the Kindle were used. Our attorneys, uh, including a nationally respected disability rights attorney, totally disagreed with that decision, but that's what that judge ruled. So there were no blind students directly affected. We believe that uh, without this settlement, without filing this litigation, that blind students in every college in the country potentially could be harmed by the use of the Kindle or, or similar devices. So this litigation has been put to rest. What happens next? As I think uh, many of your uh, listeners know, ACB is part of a very broad-based coalition called the Reading Rights Coalition. That is the entity that uh, demonstrated at the Authors Guild headquarters in New York City last year. That is the entity that participated in the book fair at UCLA here in Los Angeles back uh, also last year in April. What I think our efforts are now will be uh, within the coalition to, uh, again, press Amazon and the other manufacturers to make the Kindle and, and other devices fully accessible. We are hearing that Amazon will announce that the menus uh, in the next generation of Kindle uh, devices or on the next generation will have speech. So, you know, we're making progress there. Again, the prize, the ultimate prize, is turning the publishers and the Authors Guild around. Does that mean we won't press for further litigation if necessary? No, it's not what it means at all. In fact, the Department of Justice, who also weighed in and supported the settlement, uh, has uh, expressed interest should other universities choose to ignore this settlement and purchase for their classes inaccessible ebook readers. So we're, as they say, keeping our options open. We're going to work with the 30-some-odd organizations in the Reading Rights Coalition, but uh, we'll do what we have to do to ensure that blind students are not disadvantaged in the classroom. We're pleased. Uh, we had a very collaborative uh, relationship with the NFB, uh, with Arizona State, and uh, you don't always need to go to trial to get what you need or get what you want. So we were very pleased that we were able to reach this settlement, and we think it bodes well for uh, blind students in future. Could this have happened without both organizations of blind people coming together? I think it would have been harder. You know, people say that the two organizations never work together. Well, we do. There are areas uh, in which we do agree. There are significant differences of opinion in other areas. But uh, I think that whenever the two organizations can work together, it makes things easier. It enhances the chances that we will be successful. In announcing the settlement, the Arizona State Board of Regents and Arizona State University denied and continue to deny 
any violations of the law. Literally, as the interview with President Pomerantz was being recorded on January 13th, the Department of Justice announced similar separate agreements under the Americans with Disabilities Act with Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, Pace University in New York City, and Reed College of Portland, Oregon. Under these agreements, the universities generally will not purchase, recommend, or promote use of the Kindle DX or any other dedicated electronic book reader unless the devices are fully accessible to students who are blind and have low vision. The universities agree that if they use dedicated electronic book readers, they will ensure that students with vision disabilities are able to access and acquire the same materials and information, engage in the same interactions, and enjoy the same services as sighted students with substantially equivalent ease of use. The agreements that the Department of Justice reached with these three universities extend beyond the Kindle DX to any dedicated electronic reading device. The American Council of the Blind annually awards approximately 20 scholarships, ranging from $1,000 to $2,500. These scholarships are awarded to vocational, entering freshmen, undergraduate and graduate students who are blind or visually impaired and maintain a 3.3 GPA and are involved in their school and local community. Completed applications must be received by 11.59 on March 1st, 2010. Scholarship monies will be awarded for the upcoming academic year. To read scholarship guidelines, visit www.acb.org. For more information, phone the ACB National Office at 800-424-8666. Once each decade, the United States Census Bureau determines the current population of the country. For a recent edition of Sound Prints, a weekly talk show hosted by the Kentucky Council of the Blind, Carla Rushville and Michael McCarty interviewed Sarah Grant of the Census Bureau about the upcoming census. ACB Reports extends a thank you to the Kentucky Council of the Blind for sharing the following segment. Welcome back to Sound Prince, right here on Talk Radio 1080 WKJK and ACB Radio Mainstream, a weekly program sponsored by the Kentucky Council of the Blind. And good to have you with us again this week. We have our first guest on the line, and this is Sarah Grant. She is with the Census Bureau. And uh, she's going to talk to us a little bit about what's going on with the 2010 census. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Doing pretty good. Sarah, we're really glad that you're on with us tonight. Tell us about the census and what's new this year, what's changed, what we should expect. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years since we've done that, but it is time. Um, What we do is we mail census forms out to every household in the United States. That's over 100 million homes or housing units that we send forms to. And we ask people to, as soon as they get those forms, to fill them out, count everyone living in the house, and mail the form back to us. We can't move forward with uh, the data until we get the form back. And then, of course, if we don't receive the form, we will start what we call the non-response follow-up, and that is when the census workers go out in the field and start trying to get that information. You were telling me the other day that all the forms are going to be the same this year? 
correct. Uh, this is the first time the 10-year census has been short form only for everyone. Um, in the past, the census form has, you know, gotten to be very long with a lot of uh, detailed questions. Uh, I believe in 2000, some people got the short form and some people got the long form. But now for the 10-year census, it will be a short form for everyone, and we're hoping that that will increase the mail-back return of the census form. Mm-hmm. So now, all of that information that was on the long form isn't going to be collected next year. So how will the Census Bureau get that type of information? Well, what we have done is the information that was collected on the long form has now become um, what we call the American Community Survey, um, ACS for short. And that is actually given out to a random sample of the population, and it's an ongoing survey. So it's going all the time, you know, in between the decennial census, which is only every 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that way, we're able to keep that uh, detailed uh, demographic information uh, fresh, as opposed to just gathering that every 10 years. So Mm -hmm. by the time, you know, the 2010 census comes around, the information that was gathered from the 2000 census, of course, has changed dramatically. So all of that long-form information now has gone to the American Community Survey. It is possible, then, for someone to receive the American Community Survey and the uh, 10-year census questionnaire in the same year. Okay. So um, that is something to keep in mind. Um, most people, however, will only receive the short form. But the the survey could happen at any time. They could receive that. Correct. If they don't receive it this year or next year, they could still receive it two or three years down the road, right? That is correct. So it is. Uh, it's a random sample. About six percent of the population are receiving the American Community Survey at one time. All right. Now, on the 2010 census then, what types of questions will be on there? In other words, what is left on on the 2010 census? Well, it's some, you know, very basic information. Um it's we one of the slogans we have for the for the decennial census is 1010 in 2010. Um 10 questions takes about 10 minutes in 2010 and uh, for the head of the household, the questions include you know, how many people were living or staying in this house on April 1st, 2010. Were there any additional people staying here? Um, is it a house, apartment, or mobile home? Um, we ask for telephone number, and that is for, you know, if we don't understand the answers or we have, um, you know, something that doesn't make sense, we can give you a call. Um, we ask a gender question and a question about race and are you of Hispanic origin. And then the final question is, does this person sometimes live or stay somewhere else? So it is all very basic. And then for the following uh, people that live in the house, for example, for the next person, which we'd say person two, there are only uh, seven questions to answer. So there would be questions, though, that would be filled out for each person in the house. So if if there were children in the house, would you still have questions that you fill out for them? You would answer questions for every person living in the house. Okay. So, say we have okay. one person in the house filling out the form. They would they would answer the first ten questions for themselves, mm-hmm. and then um, for every person after that, they would answer seven questions. Okay. 
All right. Now, Sarah, if there are 12 children in that house, I'm assuming they would have to make a few copies or add some extra pages, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we have uh, the seven, seven questions to be filled in um, up to six people. And then for persons <laughs> 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, we do have um, a place where you can fill in information. And then if you need um, more, then you can request that. Yes. Now, that would become quite a chore. Now, Sarah, what if everyone in the household, or what if the head of household would require this document in some other format besides print? Have you guys put any thought into that and how they would fill that out? Is there an online place you can go to fill that information out, or how would that work? Okay, so when you say besides print, can you give me... uh, Braille, or if they want to go to a website, or if they need the questions in an audio format, as opposed to just, if you're blind and you can't read the print, then you're obviously not going to be filling out the form. And you could have a household full of blind people, and if that's the case, then what would they do to fill out that form? There's not always a time when a reader is available, although usually you can find one for something like this. It doesn't sound like it would take too long to get someone for assistance, but... You know, it sounds like there's some pretty detailed information on there. So what if I wanted to fill it out and I couldn't see the document? What would I do? Well, a lot of answers to that question. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, in general, what we do is we go out in the community and we try to get space for something called a Questionnaire Assistance Center. And that's a location that is manned by a census worker. If you have problems filling out your form and you need help, you can go there. That's number one. Number two, the actual census form um, would be available in a language assistance guide in large print, as well as a form that can be read in a Braille display, in a Braille aware note taker, or a Braille embosser. And then we do have forms available in five other languages upon request and language assistance guides in about uh, 59 languages. So it sounds like there is a place you can go on a website and get the form if you need to. You can. However, your information needs to be transmitted to the actual census form that you receive in the mail. Yeah, because isn't it true that the form that comes to my house will be coded for my house? So, therefore, it's important that even if I have that information in Braille or in large print or whatever would be appropriate for my house, that I still would need to get that onto that print form. Correct. And that's where, with the Questionnaire Assistance Center, you know, that's a place where someone could go to get assistance with that process. Now, to answer the question about going online, uh, the Bureau has done extensive studies, and one of the you know main goals uh, of the Census Bureau is to protect your personal information. And we have found that we're not able to do that 100% online today because, of course, you know we have computer hackers and things. So that's not yet an option with the census. It does the information does have to be transferred to the actual form that's sent to your house. And that's correct, Carla, what you were saying. And the reason for that is that, you know, each form is geocoded to the House because the census data is used to determine our congressional districts. Mm-hmm. And so it has to be tied to to a location. Well, the other thing about a census, um, it would go to, we'd go back to the, um, the, the long-range use of that census. And one that interests me personally, I do some genealogy and when a census is, is 70 years old, then a year or two after that, it becomes public 
the information on it becomes public. So, for example, right now, if I wanted to go and look at the 1930 census, I can find um, people on that census by household. So if it's not coded to the house, that would not be possible. Right, and, and correct, and that's a really, it's a very good point right. that if people, you know, if they don't see uh, the importance of filling out the census and, and filling it out, you know, accurately, mm-hmm. um, then in the future, when people want to do, you know, uh, extensive research on their right. family, right. They won't be able to find that information. So it is very rich, important information that we're gathering. Oh, and I can tell you, on the censuses, like the 1890 census, where a lot burned, um, I mean, it's really frustrating. You know, you kind of just have a gap there. And, And the census is really important for a lot of reasons. I mean, sometimes it's necessary to go back, and even before the census is released, it might be important for the government agency like Social Security to go back and actually look at the information in a census that relates to you for some reason, with a person's permission, of course. But um, those census records are very, very important, and it is important that everybody, you know, respond as much as possible to them. Well, one, you know, that that is, um, like I said, a very important uh, goal of the Bureau, and that all the personal information that we gather is strictly um, confidential. It's protected by law of Title 13 of the U.S. Code. For me, as a census worker, there's substantial penalties for, for giving out any of that information. So we do hold all of that personal information confidential. We don't share it with any other government agency, and we cannot release it for 72 years. Yeah. And so that's important for people to know that, that that are afraid somehow to fill out their form or that, you know, somebody else is going to get that information. And, to, and, you know, in today's day and age, we have a lot of fear about that. And mm-hmm. Yes. So that's one thing that we really do try to get people to understand that, that it is uh, confidential and, and safe. Right. Sarah, can you give us um, a website and maybe... Um if you have email or a phone number or something where people can call for more information? Sure, of course. Um, well, first of all, you can go to www.census.gov. And once you get to the main census website, um, you can click on the 2010 census logo. And that would be uh, tw- uh, 2010.census.gov and then slash 2010 census. But it, it's probably easier just to go to mm-hmm. census.gov and then go to... Um, to the yeah, to 2010 from there. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can... Uh, I can give you my... Would you like my email address? Whatever uh, you're comfortable. Okay, uh, sure. I can give people out... People have uh, questions. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. My email address is Sarah, S-A-R-A, no H. So it's Sarah.e.grant at census.gov. And is there a phone number people can call? Is there a general phone number they can call for information? Well, we do have a uh, a number for jobs where people can call in to get information about jobs. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that you are gearing up recruiting now for the 2010? Well, we have a lot of different uh, waves of operation. We do mm-hmm. need to hire about... 1.4 million part-time temporary workers. That's sort of and impressive there. <laughs> yes, it, yes. And um, right. so let, let me give you this number. It's 1-866-861-2010. 861-2010. Correct. 
if you call that number they can connect you to the local census office in your area and you can get more detailed information about jobs if they're available at this time. Sound Prince is heard each Wednesday on radio station WKJK in Louisville, Kentucky and on ACB Radio Mainstream each Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.